Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a weekly show featuring the top thought leaders in health, innovation, health policy, and the experts who are shaping the healthcare system of the future. This week's guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Barry Meyer, a longtime journalist for The New York Times, and one of the first reporters to sound the alarm on the opioid crisis. Mark and Margaret will talk with him about his new book, Painkiller, An Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic. Lori Robertson also checks in, the award-winning managing editor of factcheck.org. She looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea, highlighting innovations that are improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. And also, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, we welcome Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Barry Meyer and Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Barry Meyer, Pulitzer Prize-winning longtime reporter for the New York Times and author of Painkiller, An Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic, which is a follow-up to his 2003 book, Painkiller, A Wonder Drug's Trail of Addiction and Death, both of which examine Purdue Pharma's aggressive marketing of their blockbuster opioid OxyContin while concealing the drug's addiction dangers. Mr. Meyer recently left the New York Times, which he joined in 1989, and prior to that, worked for the Wall Street Journal and New York Newsday. Mr. Meyer is a winner of two George Polk Awards for Excellence in Journalism at the intersection of business and healthcare. Barry, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thanks for having me on. I know this is an important topic. Yes. Well, it really is. And I just want to say, uh, reading your book, what a service you've done to so many millions of American families who were just <laughs> wondering what happened and uh, powerful and moving investigation into what Purdue Pharma's role in this crisis was. Back into the 1990s, you dig deeply into this. Uh, you write that OxyContin was not a wonder drug, as the company claimed. It was a gateway drug to the most devastating public health disaster in the 21st century. And I wonder if you could just take our listeners back to the beginning of the opioid crisis and what you say was a methodical and illegal marketing campaign by Purdue Pharma, privately held company owned by one family, uh, the Sackler family, that's mushroomed into this deadly epidemic that we're grappling with today. You know, we're in the probably the, the greatest public health crisis uh, we face at the moment with opioids, and so it's very important to understand how it started. And, you know, it, it started actually sort of with good intentions, certainly on the part of the medical community. Uh, pain is a pervasive problem. There were stigmas going back into the late 1980s about using narcotics to treat pain, particularly when it came to even cancer patients who were suffering terribly at the, at the end of their lives. So there was a movement by doctors uh, to treat pain more aggressively, particularly at the end of life, and, and uh, narcotics became a principal tool to do so. And Purdue Pharma had a drug that it introduced in the mid-1980s called MS-Contin, which was a time-release form of morphine that was used to uh, treat cancer patients. It was very successful and very useful for pain specialists to use. And then as the pain management movement grew and evolved into the uh, 1990s, there was the thought that opioids have been very successful in cancer pain treatment. 
there are millions and millions of people who suffer for, from chronic pain. So why don't we use it to treat other types of pain, you know, uh, back pain, arthritis, and Purdue developed Oxycontin, which is a time-release form of the drug oxycodone, to kind of fit this movement. It sort of became a drug that uh, became the principal tool for pain management activists who wanted to treat pain more broadly. Well, Barry, we look back at the sort of the mid to late 90s as a time when treating pain as the fifth vital sign began to be a measure of quality that you were held to uh, in primary care, not just in the world of uh, terminal patients or hospice patients, but on the front lines of primary care, this became a standard that you could treat pain to zero, which we now know is uh, really kind of an illusion. But we were really thinking about how we could do better. And we had relatively few options. And as you say, part of the OxyContin marketing allure was the so-called long-acting effect, which made it less prone to abuse. And what's kind of remarkable, of course, in retrospect, is that the company managed to sell the FDA on that notion, which then gave Purdue Pharma a green light to market the drug as less addictive than other narcotics. And I doubt there's a primary care provider in the country who doesn't remember the drug salesman at their door with the peer-reviewed articles and the good housekeeping seal of approval. How were they so successful at marketing to the clinical community? What was their strategy? And, and talk a little bit about some of the kind of aggressive tactics that were used. Sure. What Purdue's own internal documents show is they knew that to make OxyContin successful, to convince the general practitioner, the family doctor, the kind of frontline physician to use this drug, they had to overcome a specific obstacle. And that obstacle was a long-standing concern among doctors that the use of opioids would lead to abuse and addiction in their patients. So the entire marketing campaign for OxyContin was built around overcoming what in sales jargon they referred to as objections. You know, the doctor would say, well, wait a minute, I've seen patients becoming addicted to these kinds of drugs. They've become addicted to Percocet or abused Percocet. So why why should I use this drug? And what they did is they took a couple of studies that really had nothing to do with the the long-term use of opioids and pain treatment and portrayed these studies as being supportive of the idea that there would be minimal or no addiction with the use of OxyContin. And then Basically, they got the seal of approval from the FDA. I think it's important to bear in mind that the FDA's approval of OxyContin, the the actual language that was used, was that OxyContin, because it was a time-release form or long-acting form, is believed to pose less abuse liability than traditional short-acting drugs. So that is believed was the language that was approved by the FDA, that is, it might be less prone. What Purdue did is it basically took this unique claim, one that had never been given to any drug before, and ran with it. So basically, they were given a gift by the FDA. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they trained their salespeople to basically go out and lie and tell healthcare professionals that it would produce less abuse and addiction. So, you know, there was an internal decision made by this company to basically deceive doctors and lie to doctors. Following up on that that deceit, 
It's hard to imagine how the company's executives and owners, the Sackler family, got away with this cover-up for so long. And you were doing this investigative work. The federal prosecutors actually had developed a case that was very prosecutable, but the Justice Department blocked this investigation. And the Justice Department has a deep well of seasoned prosecutors who have battled many other uh, large companies. So what happened? Why, why did it stop dead in its track? When, when I first started investigating uh, produced marketing of OxyContin and, and wrote the original version of Painkiller, I went back and, you know, Purdue had drawn a line in the sand. They basically had said, we first became aware of OxyContin's growing abuse in early 2000 when the U.S. attorney in Maine sent out this letter. You know, we really weren't aware of this before. Had we been aware of it, we would have sounded alarms. Uh, When I was originally researching Painkiller, I went back and I discovered, you know, articles in small-town newspapers about OxyContin abuse. I spoke to local drug investigators about OxyContin abuse. And, And a pattern began to form which suggested to me that this claim that they only became aware of this in early 2000 was not true. But what could I do? I, am a, I was just a reporter. I didn't have subpoena power. I, I couldn't take it any further than kind of raising some general questions. Lo and behold, a year ago or so, I received the report that was put together by the federal prosecutors who began investigating Purdue in late 2002 and conducted this investigation until mid-2006. And they had an advantage that I didn't have, which was they had subpoena power. And they could go through all of Purdue's documents, emails, records. They could bring people before a grand jury and question them there. And what these investigators concluded is that there was no doubt in their mind that Purdue knew about this. They knew about the drugs abuse almost immediately after it appeared on the market and that what the company and these executives did was engage in what was essentially a corporate cover-up of their knowledge and concealed this information. And I have to say that I was shocked and stunned by the details and depth of the evidence that these prosecutors had uncovered. And the executives that were, you know, the three top operating executives of Purdue, they had acted in such a fashion that they warranted uh, being indicted on very serious felony charges. And, and they wrote up this report. This report had the support of the, the U.S. Attorney General in Western Virginia. It had the support of top Justice Department officials, at least within the mid-levels of the Justice Department. But when it got up to the political levels, to the heads of the Justice Department who had been appointed by the George W. Bush administration, they essentially shot this down. I mean, it was extraordinary to me that you could have a situation where folks like you and me, had we been accused of these crimes, Mm -hmm. uh, would have walked. But folks who had powerful defense lawyers, who had politically connected defense lawyers like Rudy Giuliani, were basically treated differently. And, And I thought it was very important to Mm -hmm. bring these facts to light, because I think it's really vital as we go forward in dealing with this epidemic that, you know, corporate executives, that that anyone who is suspected of breaking the law, of jeopardizing the public's health, uh, of creating a catastrophe, 
be dealt with with the same level of justice that any other American would face. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we can't talk about the story without really talking about the devastating toll that the opioid epidemic has taken across the United States. Uh, it's estimated that OxyContin alone can be blamed for a quarter of a million deaths in this country, which is astonishing to imagine, and that's just a fraction when you extrapolate it out to all the deaths caused by related conditions, and particularly by the arrival of cheap synthetic narcotics uh, like fentanyl, uh, also heroin, which is cheaper but far more lethal. Your reporting has put us in direct contact with the worst outcomes of the crisis, and I think it would be a value to our listeners for you to talk a bit about what it looks like on the ground. Uh, A public health crisis of epic proportions. When I first started reporting on this almost 20 years ago, I was stunned by the number of deaths that there were. I was stunned by the social and and public health chaos that uh, one drug alone, OxyContin, was creating. I mean, I thought, well, okay, I've exposed the problems with this drug and its marketing. Maybe this whole thing is going to go away. I I was, like, incredibly naive. I mean, Mm -hmm. this has evolved to epidemic proportions, the number of deaths, has has quadrupled. As you mentioned, we now have these uh, counterfeit and illicit and unbelievably deadly forms of fentanyl that have appeared on the market. So essentially, we're dealing with a hydra. We're not dealing with a single problem anymore. We're dealing with a problem that has many causes that's going to require many different kinds of solutions and is going to require very uh, dramatic action by everyone involved, from you know corporate leaders to community leaders to law enforcement officials. One of the places, though, however, we do need to focus on what may be the, the easiest part of the problem, and, and that is the question of how pain is treated. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to make more types of pain treatment available, not simply opioids. I mean, this we've been sort of pushed into this method of pain treatment mm-hmm. by the profit motives of both the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry. So we have to start looking at alternative pain treatments. And then we also have to look at addiction treatments and not simply giving people pills, but giving them other supportive measures that will help them deal with and hopefully overcome their addiction. I think we need to focus our treatments of both pain and addiction around compassion. The, the people who are addicted to these drugs and the people who are affected with pain as compassionately as possible. And that will require a wider array of treatments and approaches. We're speaking today with Barry Meyer, longtime New York Times reporter, winner of the Pulitzer Prize and author of Painkiller and Empire of Deceit and the Origins of America's Opioid Epidemic. Barry, you've been covering this, as you said, for almost two decades, and still the story continues to unfold. And a number of states attorney generals have since filed class action suits against Purdue Pharma's executives and company owners, citing their culpability. Massachusetts uh, leveled new charges uh, right after the release of your book. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, what further legal challenges the company's facing or the likelihood of additional charges. Uh, as fate would have it, I covered the tobacco cases for the New York Times back in the early 2000s. Good, excellent training. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I've seen this play a lot. Mm -hmm. I've covered a lot of stories, Mm. defective medical devices and and problematic drugs, 
and, and plaintiff's lawyers kind of rushing into the breach and settling cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen this play out actually before with OxyContin because there was a slew of lawsuits filed against Purdue Pharma, you know, 15 years ago that were quickly resolved and settled. Uh, there were state cases that were filed against Purdue Pharma that were quickly resolved and settled. Maybe it's just a function of getting older and grouchier, uh, <laughs> but I think we need the truth to come out. I mean, that's been my guiding principle as a journalist, and I think it should be our guiding principle going forward. Let's not take the easy money. Let's get to the truth. Let's force these companies to disclose everything they knew. Let's find out once and for all what the Sackler family mm-hmm. knew about Purdue's marketing of this drug and the reports of abuse of OxyContin that Purdue was receiving. When I received this Justice Department report that had been written a decade ago, that w- that report contained the first concrete evidence that members of the Sackler family were told about abuse both of OxyContin and its predecessor drug, MS-Contin. Mm-hmm. We need this record to be complete. We need to know what these companies knew. We need to know what the Sackler family knew. If we are going to seek compensation for people who were affected by these drugs, I think we first need to know the depth of knowledge that both the company and the Sackler family had. There's already been articles uh, in the Times and elsewhere about mm-hmm. how this dr- judge in Ohio you know, wants to resolve this case right away, wants some sort of global settlement. Uh, let's not rush there, hmm. because all, those kinds of settlements really just enrich lawyers. Let's get to the bottom of things first, because mm-hmm. I think as a society we have been so devastated mm-hmm. by this epidemic we really owe it to ourselves to know who knew what and mm-hmm. when they knew it. We are seeing a decline in the number of prescriptions being written for these drugs, and yet, at the same time, the death toll continues to rise. The health publication STAT recently conducted a survey of the nation's leading public health experts and concluded that another half million people could die from overdose in the coming decade. And the healthcare system remains pretty under-resourced to handle the the sheer magnitude of this public health crisis and the complexities of of treating and and managing addiction. So what more needs to be done to get a handle on the crisis in terms of the, the continuing death toll that we're seeing? Well, it's a question of resources and finances. And underlying that, I believe, is also the issue of what insurers are going to pay, what pressure is going to be placed on insurers to provide treatment services. And, and here I see a, a great role that can be played by employers. Corporate leaders have an obligation to their employees to make sure that the health care they provide to their employees is the best possible health care available. So I, w- I would like to see the major leaders of corporations in this country, you know, people like Amazon and, and Berkshire Hathaway and Google, stand up for their employees and say, we have employees who are going to unfortunately fall ill, who may in fact become addicted, and we are going to insist, if you as an insurer want our business 
you're going to have to provide our employees with the best possible services that benefit our employees and get them back to work as soon as possible. I was thinking as you were talking about your role in the following the big tobacco settlements, while there was a tremendous treasure trove of money that was received, many states robbed those dollars that were supposed to go to tobacco cessation programs. Though I think there probably needs to be some combination of figuring out ways to fund these treatment services. And also, corporate leaders really remember servants of shareholders. And I'm just wondering what you're seeing in the shareholder class action uh, arena in terms of holding people accountable. Well, I mean, uh, even speaking about insurance companies, I mean, they, for years, would only fund the use of, of pain pills. You know, that was, you know, if a doctor wanted to send someone to physical therapy or to alternative forms of pain treatment, they denied coverage. I consider that completely unacceptable and they bear a tremendous responsibility for the vast increase in the use of these pills over the past 20 years. Going forward, we've been going around in circles for the past two decades. You know, you have companies and insurers refusing to provide alternative services. You have pain patients and people with addiction at each other's throats or advocates for them at each other's throats. And the only way to break that cycle is for a reframing of how we treat pain and how we treat addiction. I know more about pain treatment than I do about addiction treatment, but what I do know about addiction treatment has led me to the belief that uh, addiction is a very, very complicated uh, health condition, while drugs like buprenorphine are very good in reducing uh, cravings for opioids that that individuals who are afflicted with uh, addiction-related diseases also need other services mm-hmm. as well, you know, be it psychological counseling, behavior, behavioral counseling. So in the same way that we try to uh, treat pain with, you know, throwing pills at people, we can't think we're going to get ourselves out of this addiction problem by throwing mm-hmm pills at people. We have to provide them with comprehensive services, and those comprehensive services are costly. And and if we really are truly um, genuine about resolving this problem, we're going to have to make those funds available somehow. We've been speaking today with Barry Meyer, longtime reporter for The New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner, and the author of Painkiller and Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic. You can find the book online at barrymeyerbooks.com or at your local bookstore, and you can follow him on Twitter at Barry Meyer, and that's spelled M-E-I-E-R. Barry, we want to thank you for your tenacious reporting on this critically important story and for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It was my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? 
Well, last week we looked at the decline in opioid prescriptions over the past six or seven years, and we noted that while dispensed prescriptions for opioids have been declining, total deaths from opioid overdoses have continued to increase. Let's take a closer look at those figures. More than 42,000 people died of overdoses related to prescription and illicit opioids in 2016. That's five times more than in 1999, according to figures from the CDC, and more than those who died in car accidents in 2016, according to data from the National Safety Council. The CDC's provisional numbers for 2017 show a continued increase in opioid overdose deaths to 46,041 for the 12 months ending in October 2017. The CDC warns, though, that these numbers include incomplete data, so the figure is likely higher. The continued increase has been driven by illicit opioid use, including heroin and synthetic opioids. As dispensed prescriptions declined, the rise in yearly deaths related to prescription opioids slowed. Between 2011 and 2015, the number was relatively stable, according to a 2017 National Academy of Sciences report. However, overdose deaths from illicit opioids nearly tripled in that same time period, the NAS report said, quote, driven in part by a growing number of people whose use began with prescription opioids. The CDC says that fentanyl, an extremely strong opioid, is driving the increases. Fentanyl, which is a prescription opioid but can be manufactured illegally, is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. To be clear, it's often difficult to pinpoint which drug caused a fatal overdose because people who have died often test positive for multiple drugs, for example, both heroin and a prescription opioid or heroin and a non-opioid such as cocaine. That's why experts say deaths are opioid-related. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Currently, some 30 million Americans have type 2 diabetes, and that number is expected to climb substantially in the coming decades. Patients who were newly diagnosed often find it difficult to process the behavioral change required to keep their disease in check. So Amazon, the creator of the interactive voice technology known as Alexa, and pharmaceutical entity Merck teamed up to launch a competition for developers to create a tool using existing technology that would help folks better manage their diabetes. The winner, SugarPod, developed by Seattle-based startup WellPepper. The challenge was how do you help someone newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? And we already had interactive care plans for people with uh, type 2 diabetes. They, they were mobile. And then we thought, well, sure, we can voice enable those care plans, but isn't that what everyone's going to do? So we sat down and brainstormed and we came up with about 20 different ideas. And what we thought that was the most interesting was this integrated care plan that included a device, which is a voice-powered scale and foot scanner that looks for diabetic foot ulcers. And, and the reason we went down that path was that we thought that the scale 
was a nice way of fitting into a routine that someone already had in their day. CEO Ann Weiler says they were intrigued by the opportunity to incorporate Alexa's voice technology for coaching purposes, along with some simple technologies that exist, but had never been put together, including a scale and an image scanner. The three components are voice-enabled scale and foot scanner, a mobile care plan because voice isn't always the best interface. Sometimes you are at work and you don't want to be talking to someone about your symptoms and your side effects. And then a, a voice interaction that could happen with any sort of Alexa device. Chief Technology Officer Mike Van Snellenberg said creating a user-friendly interface was important and they got great feedback from consumers who said they quickly adapted to the SugarPod interface. Yeah, especially anytime you want to do interventions on people that are already kind of, well, you need to have very low-touch, lightweight interactions and things that don't interfere with a person's life and can kind of gently nudge them in the right direction. I think voice is a great application for that. It's uh, a device that a lot of people already have in their homes. Their SugarPod design is essentially an image scanner placed on the top of a scale with an Alexa speaker on the post in front. While weights are measured and feet photographed, Alexa offers suggestions for weight management, diet, and exercise goal, and other behaviors that will empower patients to make lasting behavior changes. SugarPod, a simple constructed Alexa-enabled weight and foot ulcer scanner that empowers newly diagnosed diabetes patients to shift their behaviors to better manage their disease, providing a flow of important clinical information for their providers who can benefit from the real-time monitoring of patient health data, leading to better diabetes management for patients and providers. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.